This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking scene openings in the butt one word at a time. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Did, didn't we just finish four episodes where we were talking about scene openings? What's going on? <laughs> oh, well, Did you find another brilliant scene opening of yours that you want to go through? Oh, nay, nay. I found the <laughs> absolutely exact opposite of brilliant scene openings I wanted to go through. So this episode, should we call this episode how not to do a scene opening? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, that that pretty much nails it. I, I have in my notes chapters and scene openings, an example of missing critical elements. <laughs> Yours is much. Yours, much more that eloquent. sounds much more scientific. That that sounds like a research paper, <laughs> right? Let's go with how not to write. Yes. No, scene opening. Yes, clickbait. Mine is far more clickbaity than yours. Let's go with clickbait. So, any chit chat? Do we have any chit chat this week? We would normally talk about this before we started recording, but we were talking about something else. I know, right? Well, um, I have. Funny stories. I don't know if we want to hear funny stories from around the farm or not. Funny stories from the farm? All right. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So um, I've talked a bit about, uh, you know, the the chicks that I was growing out and, you know, letting them stay in their little self-contained area and until they were big enough. And I have decided they are big enough. I am done. I am so done taking care of them. They can learn how to forage. And um, I kind of have this survival of the fittest mentality because that's the only way things live around here is that they learn and that the smart ones survive and they pass on their genes and that's just how it goes. But I will go on the record here as saying that chickens and chicks are some of the dumbest, most stupidest animals ever created. (laughs) And here's why. Okay. Um, Well, chickens, as you've probably heard, you know, all the chickens are coming home to roost or whatever. They they come back to wherever it was they are from. Like when they when they get used to being in a certain place, that's their home. And when it starts to get dark, they all come back to wherever that was. And that works really, really well if they're in the right place. But when you have and, and it does work well for survival and whatever, you know, that's not dumb. That's smart. Good for them. But when you have a bunch of little guys and girls who've been used to sleeping in a certain spot and you're trying to move those little guys and girls to another spot, it can become an adventure (laughs) because the way that things are set up here, um, there's lots of places, fences for them to run around, you know, get behind or whatever. And to them, they're not old enough yet to see me as their friend. And so you, I wait until it starts to get dark because they don't see well in the dark. And once they get, once it gets dark, then they are looking to roost. They're not going to be keep running out and whatever. But here's the other thing. When I'm trying to get 
them to learn to go up into a new place, it's much better if I can sort of herd or corral them in that direction and they go up themselves than me catching them and putting them in because it's like the difference between when you're behind the wheel and you're driving somewhere or you're sitting in the passenger seat. You're much more familiar with the route when you're the one in behind the wheel, right? And so it's the same kind of concept. And so I always know that when I'm going to be moving them from one place to the next, getting them used to another house, this is not going to be quick and easy. I need to factor in about an hour a night to be able to do this and that it's going to take about a week to get it done. And so, um, and what I have to do is I have to close off different gates and stuff to keep them from getting in there. And there's still plenty of stuff for them to run around. So here's where we're at. It's been raining. It's muddy. It means that I have to walk very, very carefully so that I don't end up rolling around in the mud. (laughs) And these little guys think that I'm trying to slaughter them. And so they're scattering every direction and they, they insist on always coming back to the same place. So they run screaming, careening all over the place. And I'm trying to herd them in the right direction. And they make the same loop like four times. Like I get them where they're supposed to go, but they didn't quite go. They'll be almost on the doorstep and then they'll go, no, and they'll go running in the opposite direction. And we make the circuit again (laughs) and again, and it's getting darker and slippier, (laughs) more slippy. And finally, at the end, like each time I'll get a few more in, a few more in, a few, and it'll be down to the same four or five stupid little young roosters who are the biggest crybabies in the whole wide world. (laughs) And by the time we get to them, I'm like, fine, get in, I don't care, slam, and I'm gone. Like, if you survive, you survive, but if you get eaten, you earned it. Because I'm just like, it's an hour of this, right? And they're so maddening and frustrating. And I'm like, you're so stupid. Why can't you go where you're supposed to go? So I've been doing that for the last four nights. (laughs) And have have they all survived? Well, so far I've managed to get all but one or two in every night. So I mean, I just I I know they're gonna some of them are gonna get got, but you know I'm trying to save your little stupid life here. You know, come on, work with me. But every night it gets a little bit easier because there are that many fewer who haven't got it. And now we're down to like the little roosters and the crybabies and whatever. And those are the really not fun ones. But yes, that's my latest farm story. And then I did have, I don't know if you saw this or not. I posted it in the Facebook group. I I went away for a weekend and I came back to zucchini um, longer than my, from my elbow all the way to the palm of my, the middle of the palm of my hand. Good grief. It, it was like a big, it weighed, it weighed four pounds. <laughs> it was so big. <laughs> I have pictures of it up on the Facebook group, and I have pictures of what I turned it into. So if you want to see that, go there. Oh, yeah, I gotta, I've got to go look. Was it good? Yeah, it was different. Like, I, I was worried that it was going to be really unpleasant to eat, but it just had a different, it had, it had the texture more of a turnip. But the flavor and everything was fine. Hmm. So you, I, I love this. I love that you're eating, you're growing what you eat now. That's really cool. Yeah, I haven't bought vegetables for a while. But I've got tomatoes, zucchini, squash, um, peppers have started growing, and um, there's something else. I don't remember what it was. 
I've got watermelons growing too, but we'll see if they actually make it or not. It's my first time. Oh, onions. I've been using onions from the garden too. So it's been, it's been good. It's been fun. All right, Taylor. So explain to us exactly. Well, maybe you could even read to us how not to do a scene opening. (laughs) Okay. So um, like everybody knows, if you're with us this far, we have spent the last several episodes going over this one particular sequence, the opening sequence from The Innocent, and trying to break down why it worked the way we did. And so lest anyone be confused thinking that the whole book lived up to that I want to show an opening that comes several chapters later that fails to deliver on every single count. And I want to break down why it's not working. And I know that after having already done all these other episodes, you might be very tired of this subject. And I don't blame you. And I promise we do have other things to talk about. And I promise that after this one is done, we won't talk about chapter openings for at least another week. (laughs) But the reason why I wanted to do this now is because we have just gone through those several episodes of showing what it looks like to do an opening right. And I think it would be helpful to show what it looks like to do one wrong by the same author (laughs) in the same book. So basically, I get to eviscerate myself here. And because I want you guys to see that, you know, like Steve was asking, well, how did you know all the way back then to do it this way? And I was like, well, instinct, (laughs) apparently my instinct wasn't so great. (laughs) Utterly failed in a few chapters later. I want you guys to see that I, too, really, really mess stuff up sometimes. Okay, so before we get to that, I wanted to remind I want to take a step back and remind ourselves why we focus on these critical elements in the first place. And that's because. We are trying to get the reader's mental movie playing as quickly as possible. We're trying to create a stronger, more visceral, emotional reading experience. We want to keep the reading brain engaged in a way that makes it difficult to let go of the material. And we do that by dropping them fully into a scene so that they know what's going on, where they are, whose head they're in, all these things. It lets the mental movie just start unspooling immediately, right? That's our ultimate goal in all of this. So when I start talking about, you know, critical elements that are missing or whatever, it's not like there's just this this rule list that we're trying to follow. And when we didn't follow these rules or tick this box, these boxes, it's just wrong. Like if you can find a way to accomplish the same thing, not following these rules, by all means, do it. But what I'm trying to present are if-then scenarios. If your scene opening doesn't have these critical elements, it's probably not as strong as it should be. It's probably not engaging the reader in the way that you could if you did it otherwise. So that's what this scene fails to do. But it's, it's also really interesting because even though this scene doesn't follow what we want want it to do it 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 is a failure in that sense it still manages to work on a certain level and by work i mean like it's passable and it doesn't feel horrifically amateurish and that's because the writing in itself is is clean enough like it doesn't linger over long on unimportant things it doesn't branch off into tangents it doesn't get into a bunch of nasal gazing it doesn't do a lot of the things that are easy to fall into um, when you're first starting out. And, and so, in other words, it more or less keeps the story moving. So this particular sequence 
is it's not only a really good example of what getting the critical elements wrong looks like, it also shows us how it's possible to get it wrong and the material to still be readable. It shows us that just like with disembodied voices or violating cause and effect or some of the other things that we see so often in fiction, doing it quote unquote wrong is so common that it can feel normal. So if you were to read this particular scene in any other book, if you were to read it without me pointing out all the things that were wrong with it, or if you didn't already hadn't already been listening to these podcasts for five, five years worth of material, you probably wouldn't notice anything different from it than anything else that you're reading out there right now, because it's just so common for this. So it's not like we're saying, oh, it has to be done X, Y, Z way. It's like, do you want to elevate your writing above what is common? Do you want to create a gripping read? That's where these, these uh, critical elements come into play. The other thing this shows us is that doing it wrong isn't the end of the world. I mean, this book still got rave reviews. It still was highlighted as like one of the best books of the year by, or the best thriller of the year by, I don't know, some San Francisco Chronicle or something like that. So yes, this was an abject failure of a scene opening, but it didn't ruin the book. So I'm just trying to keep that all in perspective, right? So like I said, the purpose of all of these is getting these elements in place is to accomplish a specific thing. And if you can accomplish that, doing it a different way, that's more comfortable for you, go for it, do it. So as a reminder, here's what we're looking for. <clears throat> we need to know whose head we're in, where that character's body is in space and time, and we need to know those two things in that specific order before or while that point of view character is moving or speaking. We need a sense of mood and atmosphere. We need to know why the character is where they are. We need to know the character's frame of mind and any other characters that are there and where those characters' bodies are in time, space, and place. And then any other specific details in the order that they're being seen. So our goal is to avoid forcing our characters to act, move, or speak in a blank void or untethered and de detached from the visual elements or information we're providing. So with that in mind, the material we're going to work with is the opening uh, page, the opening five paragraphs from chapter nine in The Innocent. And um, so for those who haven't read the book or who aren't planning to, what you need to know for this to make sense, is that Monroe is our main character. She's just arrived in Buenos Aires together with Logan, Gideon, and Heidi. Logan is Monroe's surrogate brother, like her closest friend, and he is connected to Gideon and Heidi by a shared childhood. And the three of them, as well as others who haven't made this trip and who aren't mentioned in this chapter, they've all pooled their money together to hire Monroe to do the job that's brought them here. So that's kind of where we are, Who? because some of these names are going to come up. Um, and then this story has four point of view characters, which is also really important for understanding some of the criticisms of this chapter. Um, there's Monroe, there's Logan, there's Bradford, and there's Hannah, who's not mentioned in, in this segment. So we know that there are four, and that's important. So this segment is about 300 words, and I'm going to read it first. And then once we've read it, now that I've told you what you're looking for, we're going to read it, and then we'll go back and dissect it. So, San Telmo Buenos Aires. 
Their hotel wasn't a hotel, but rather a hostel, a single, no, sorry, a small single story of shared and private rooms, a common kitchen, and a small living area located south of the city center in the oldest neighborhood. The area was made up of colonial buildings and cobblestone streets, cafes, and milongas, all of it vibrant and alive with color. And here they would stay until Monroe had a better grasp of what the job entailed and the length of time required to pull it off. Like Monroe, Logan was committed for the duration, but Gideon only had two weeks and Heidi three before they each had to return home. Without consulting Monroe, they developed their own set of expectations as to how quickly the project would progress. And as with everything else surrounding their involvement, Monroe ignored them and ignored the expectations. The little group had two rooms side by side, and the boys' master plan and the minimal operating budget called for Monroe to stay with Heidi. The walls, though thin, were a continuation of the same barrier that 14 rows of seats had thankfully provided during the flight, and although this arrangement was better than being cooped up with either Gideon or Logan, sharing a room did not provide the solitude Monroe so desperately craved. She needed sleep, needed it badly. She'd promised Bradford that she'd try to go under without medication, but none of this was possible while sharing a space with someone else. Gideon had allotted a few hours to clean up, rest, and otherwise settle before reconvening in the late afternoon. Fighting the urge to drift off, Monroe lay down, waited until Heidi reached the rhythmic patterns of sleep, then slipped from her bed and headed out the door. So, funnily enough, before we started this, Steve went and read, um, he read this. He's like, real quick, I want to see what we're going over. And I was like, can you see what the issue is? And I was so proud of him because he nailed it. And I was, it's, it's hilarious to me because we're eviscerating my own work and he was telling me what was wrong with my own work and I was so happy. So anyway, I'm going to tell you what I find wrong with this. Okay. First, we have no idea whose head we're in until we reach the fourth paragraph. And I'm going to break that part down in more detail in just a bit. Second, we have no idea where that body is in time, space, and place till the end of the fifth paragraph. Third, we are thrown a lot of scene setting that could be considered mood and atmosphere, but because all of it is coming before we know whose head we're in, it's mostly just noise. Fourth, we're also thrown a decent amount of information and strategy before we know whose head we're in, and so that too, filler. It's like this detached even though technically classify as an info dump, it still kind of feels that way because it's detached from the flow of story movement. And fifth, we have to get all the way through this segment, which in the printed copy, I think is like a whole page because of the way it's, it's the chapter opening. So you're basically getting through a whole page before the mo mental movie even begins to play. And so all of this is a really exa good example of how you can have the best craft in the world, perfect sentences, exact imagery. And I'm not saying that that's what this is. I'm just saying that you could have that. But if you don't use story as a vehicle for that word craft, it's just blah, 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 blah. And that's what this scene opening is, blah, 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 blah. But you could be a really, really crappy wordsmith. And you could come along and focus really hard on the story and the critical elements and get those right, and readers are still going to connect with what you're writing. That's why we talk about these critical elements, because beautiful words don't count. Character counts, and character is completely missing in this scene. 
So just to remind you, the critical elements, what are the most important ones, whose head we're in, where that character's body is in time, place, and space, and in that specific order. So if just those two things had been done correctly in this segment, they might have just salvaged the rest. And so that's what I want to go back and focus on is whose head we're in and where the character's body is in time, space, and place. And the the sad thing is this opening almost does it. It gets so close. It gets so close to telling us whose head we're in several times and each time it just yanks us right back out and fails to deliver. So the first time is it shows up in the opening paragraph, the end of the opening paragraph. It says, this the area was made up of colonial buildings and cobblestone streets, cafes and belongings, all of it vibrant and alive with color. That could be mood and atmosphere if we had a sense of who said we were in. But it says, and here they would stay until Monroe had a better grasp of what the job entailed and the length of time required to pull it off. And at first blush, it really does seem like this is telling us it's we're in Monroe's head. I mean, she's named here, right? And she's the only name. And you'd think that'd be enough to make it clear. But under these circumstances, it's not. And that's because her name is preceded by here, they would stay. And they is ambiguous. They is talking about a group, something happening to a group. And Monroe is one of the people in that group. And then this is followed by until Monroe had a better grasp. And that's not putting us inside Monroe's head. That's giving us group strategy, right? She had a better grasp of what the job entailed. So Monroe is part of the they. And the they are relying on Monroe to determine how long this is going to take. So this entire paragraph could be told from Logan's point of view without changing a single word. And it would make exactly the same amount of sense as if it was written from Monroe's point of view. So it is not telling us whose head we're in at all, even though it gets really close. So let's say that we guessed right. Let's say we assumed we were in Monroe's head. Well, the next sentence just goes and muddies it all back up again, because the next sentence says, like Monroe, Logan was committed for the duration. So is this scene coming from Monroe's head or Logan's head? It can still be read from either direction, and it can still make the same sense. And then it continues. Gideon only had two weeks, and Heidi three before they each had to return home. Without consulting Monroe, they developed their own set of expectations as to how quickly the project would progress. And as with everything else surrounding their involvement, Monroe ignored them and ignored the expectations. So here we are at the end of that second paragraph. And the only thing making it feel a bit more like we're in Monroe's head than Logan's are the phrases without consulting Monroe and Monroe ignored the expectations. And that's because both are a little less flattering to Logan than what you'd expect a character to express about themselves. Like a character wouldn't be saying, you know, I didn't consult with her and we developed our own set of expectations. So that makes you think, okay, maybe this is Monroe's point of view. And then Logan could say Monroe ignored him. That does make sense. But combined with the other one, you're like, okay, maybe this is Monroe's head, right? But then Dang it, it flips us again. And it makes it seem like maybe it's Logan's head after all, because it says the little group had two rooms side by side, and the boy's master plan and the middle minimal operating budget called for Monroe to stay with Heidi. And the thing that's causing this to flip is it introduces Logan, the boy's master plan, before it introduces Monroe. And then when it does introduce Monroe again, it's again part of this whole group strategy thing. So now we're, I guess, at the end of the third paragraph. 
we finally swing in Monroe's direction. And it's never like super explicit. It takes it takes mental gymnastics to get here. But because it's referencing something from Monroe's previous thoughts, then that's how we can assume we're in her head. And it says, the walls, though thin, were a continuation of the same barrier that 14 rows of seats had thankfully provided during the flight. That's the reference to something that Monroe had thought or felt in the past. And although this arrangement was better than being cooped up with Gideon or Logan, okay, now we're not in Logan's head because better than being cooped up with Gideon or Logan, sharing a room did not provide the solitude Monroe so desperately craved. Three paragraphs to know for certain whose head we're in is way too long. And it might be forgivable if we weren't bouncing back and forth between possibilities of whose head we were in and just waiting for the show to start. But the way it is now, there is no way to attach meaning to all the information we're handed to any person or any place. It's just there hanging in space, detached. It's blah, blah, blah. Get to the point already so we can see the movie. So now we finally know we're in Monroe's head. And then we just skip right over where her body is in time, space, and place and go straight to her frame of mind. She needed sleep, needed it badly. She'd promised Bradford that she'd try to go under without medication, but none of this was possible while sharing a space with someone else. And it continues, and we still don't get her body. We jump back to talking about the guys and their plans. Gideon had allotted a few hours to clean up, rest, and otherwise settle before reconvening in the late afternoon. Okay, great. And now finally, finally, we're put solidly into Monroe's head and shown a glimpse of her body. Fighting the urge to drift off, Monroe lay down, waited until Heidi reached the rhythmic patterns of sleep. So in this, Monroe lay down, shows us her body, but it doesn't show us where her body is in time, space, or place. And that's because all we've been given up until now are a list of visual elements. We know they exist. We know a room exists. We know she's rooming with Heidi. We know there's this house in this particular neighborhood that's more of a hostel than a hotel. But without her body, it's just placeholders. It's just information. We don't even know what she laid down on. I mean, we can assume it's a bed and it shows up in the next paragraph that it's a bed, but we can assume she's in one of two rooms that we were told about, but we've never actually seen a single thing through her eyes. We've never been handed anything that shows us her moving in time and space. We've just been given these details. So we don't actually know that she's laying down on a bed and we certainly don't see it in a mental movie. It's just information. So as a reader, we are completely disconnected from the story all the way up until now. It's just blah, blah, blah. We have no idea where Monroe's body is in time, space, or place until the very last clause of the fifth sentence, the fifth paragraph, very last clause of the sentence in the fifth paragraph where it says she slipped from her bed and headed out the door. So five whole paragraphs in, after being info dumped on, told stuff, we finally get what we've been waiting for. Now we have character emotion, and now the movie can begin. Unforgivable. And, and the funny thing is, if you were doing this and it was someone else's work, it would sound the same. But when you right before you you said it was unforgivable, you'd say, "But it's really good." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that is the beauty of being able to use my own work as an example of how not to do it is I can completely trash myself without worrying about, you know, feelings or discouraging someone. I like the book's already published. It's already been praised. I can trash it. So normally at this stage in a tutorial or whatever, I would take this same material and I would rewrite the segment and start showing you how to fix it. But I can't. Because if I start down this rabbit hole of rewriting my own already published work, there is no coming back from that. I will, <laughs> I will get nothing done for the, nothing else done for the next two years. <laughs> so I want to do something a little bit different today. Steve doesn't know what I'm about to do. So Steve, I hope you don't gasp. All right, this show has been going on for about five years now. So for five years, or at least five years worth of weekly shows material for those of you who've gone back and binged or whatever, you have been listening to me teach and you have been watching me show how to make words work. You know all this stuff, or at least you know enough of it to know what to do. I want you to fix it. You can consider this a creative writing assignment. I don't think I've ever handed one of these out before. You can consider this a shove to force you to take what you've been learning and absorbing all this time and put it into practice and actually use it. And because this is not your material, you don't have to worry about messing it up. There's no ego. There's no nothing. You can just scribble all over it. I don't care. I want you to show me how to make this opening better. Now, I thought about this a little bit. And just based on my own experience, I don't know that it's actually possible to rewrite this little sequence as self-contained only using the elements that exist in 300 words. So to do it effectively, to really be able to drop in Monroe's head, to show her, to show whose head we're in and whatever, the body right off the bat, it might mean having to put voice to thoughts or um, things that just don't show up the pay on the page exactly. And that's going to involve taking some risk. It's going to involve the risk of getting something wrong. Take the risk, right? And it also might be helpful to take a look at the whole chapter or even the chapter before to get a sense of what's coming after these particular 300 words and then to work with and adapt from that. And this is not a ploy to get people who haven't read the book to buy the book or whatever. If you want to do this assignment, this creative writing assignment, if you want to actually take these five years that I've been teaching you and do more with it than just listen to it. And I know there are quite a few listeners who've used these, these shows to improve their own work. So I'm not saying everybody who listens to it just listens and doesn't do anything. So forgive me. That's not where I'm going. But if you want to, if you want to do this assignment and you don't have a copy of this book, if you can't get a copy from your local library, if you don't want or can't afford to buy a copy of your own, email me. I'll send you the chapter. All right. This is not about trying to get you to, to, to buy a book. This is about trying to get you to do this creative writing assignment and I will get you the material that you need to do it. I want you to show me what you've done. I don't care if you're embarrassed about it. I don't care if you're like, oh, I can't mess with Taylor's work or Taylor's going to think this is stupid. I don't care. I want to see your finished work. 
I want to see how you would improve this scene or not even improve it, how you would take the critical elements and integrate them into this scene so it actually does what it's supposed to do. And if you do this, and if I get more than one entry, I'm going to read them all, and I'm going to pick the one that manages to get closest to what this chapter should have been, and I'm going to read it on the show. You can use your real name. You can use a cinnamon. A cinnamon. You can use a pseudonym. And if you have anything of your own that's already published, you can use this as an opportunity to brag on yourself with your submission. Send me what you want me to tell listeners about you. Tell, let me promote your work for you because you've earned it. That's your prize for getting the piece that got me closest. Who knows? There might be more than one piece that I feel is really worth our listeners reading of how you guys did better than how I did with a published book that is part of a best-selling series, okay? Be proud of yourselves here. I want to see what you will do with all the material I've been teaching you over these five years. And I will, the winners, or if there's only one person, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not actually expecting, I, I'm so used to putting stuff out there and then crickets that I really have no idea what's going to happen to this. I, my dream would be that my inbox get, gets flooded with respondents, responses. The deadline for submissions for getting them to me is August 15th. Show me what you've got. I want to see it. I'm in. I'm doing it. <laughs> Good. Good. I'm really happy about this. It'll be at least one submission. <laughs> I've given you guys the tools. You know what to do. And since I cannot do my this for my own work, you show me what it can look like. And I want to see it. Yes. And this is a, as, as I think we said a few weeks ago, this is a nine-year-old book. So you should have no problem getting at the library. It's, it's not like there's going to be a line of people to read a nine-year-old book at the library. So you should be able to get at the library. You may be able to get a digital copy at, at the library. I know we have a, we have a lot of uh, international listeners, too. So if you're not in the United States, you might have trouble getting it. Don't pirate a copy, please. Just don't pirate it. If you need it, I'll send it to you. But beyond that, libraries borrowing, somebody's got to have a copy around. All right. So this is fun. Our first ever homework assignment, I think. I know, right? And I hope August 15th is enough time. Um, I figure it'll be like two or three weeks from the date this show airs. So hopefully. Yeah, it should. It, well, we'll see. We will see, won't we? If it's enough time. Yes. <laughs> yes. Actually, it's funny because I, I have no... I, I have no idea what month I'm even in right now. <laughs> I have no idea what day it is right now. And I'm just like randomly throwing a dart at the calendar going, I think this is about right. <laughs> well, this episode should go live around July 19th. Okay. So maybe, yeah, 15th. That's almost, August 15th is almost a month yeah. to, to work on it. So that should be good. All right. This is exciting. So, uh, Thank you, Taylor, for the opportunity to do this. And thank you guys for listening. We will be back in your ear again. Who knows? Maybe talking about openings. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I'll give you at least one other, one other week of other subjects for us. All right. We'll be back in your ear next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. See you guys next week.